forget many of the paradigms you've learned over the last few years. Stop seeing it as a management topic, but try to perceive it as an entrepreneur and be prepared to get your hands dirty. Don't think you can control AI if you don't have your own individual experience. People will be able to fool you. You won't be able to choose the right partners. You won't be able to hire the right people. None of this works if you do not understand the game. And for that, you have to have a willingness to get your hands dirty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ready podcast, where we look at how to build thriving organizations in turbulent times. My name is Anna Cutting, founder of Cozen and your host. Artificial intelligence, perhaps the two most iconic words of 2023. Throughout the past months, we have all heard a lot about AI. What is it? What can it do? How can it benefit our work? How can it potentially threaten it? What are the societal implications it's bringing on? To get to the bottom of these questions, we are launching a new season today. In several episodes, we will be looking in particular at the impact of AI on corporate communications. Uh, I'll be talking to data scientists, IT leaders, researchers, and of course, communications experts who are leading the AI revolution. Hopefully, after listening to the season, you'll have a good overview of how working in corporate communications will change and of the role of corporate communications in supporting this transformation. Today's guest is someone who was developing AI long before most of us could even dream of ChatGPT. Pajam Hassan is a data scientist and co-founder of Intuitive AI, a company that helps businesses improve complex decision-making with AI. Our goal today is to explore the vast field of AI and lay the groundwork for this new season. As we at Kosen have worked with Payam on several occasions, I can promise you it'll be exciting. But before we get started, I'd like to tell you something special about this episode. It was originally recorded in German, and our team at Kosen translated it into English with the help of AI. Just a little taste of what AI will make possible in the world of communication. But now, finally to Pajam and to our first episode of the AI season. Pajam, welcome to Future Ready. Hi, Arnie. Thanks for the invitation. Pajam, we're at the start of our AI season, in which we'll be looking at the impact AI will have on corporate communications. Both in the sense of all the new possibilities that AI will bring to the industry, for example, in the management of one's own comms department, and in the sense of communications teams becoming AI enablers internally, i.e., helping to make organizations AI ready. We are incredibly pleased to have you with us today, Pajam, as a proven expert in the first episode to draw the map of what's going on in AI. Pajam, why don't start by telling us a bit more about yourself? How did you get into AI? What is your personal AI journey? I would love to. My name is Pajam Hassan. As you said, I'm 37 years old started my career in the digital sector as a student. Quite normally, while others were developing websites, I was working with databases. Saw potential there first in classic data mining, data mining as it still existed in the early phases, i.e. classic ML algorithms, machine learning algorithms that can be used to improve data quality. And you could use that quite well wherever people had a relatively large amount of data. And I realized, okay, you can get a grip on one or two problems with machine learning without having to think too much about how the data is changed. So data quality means you have missing values which you can replace without defining how you replace them. Then from the data, a model can be developed. 
And that was the first moment when I thought, wow, this works quite well and is very effective. And it also creates great business value. And that's when I became curious. But this still took a while. I first started a normal corporate career and worked in various positions as a developer um, where I could take on some responsibilities and also got a little budget. Then I worked for the Volkswagen Group where I worked in the corporate research department. At some point, it was considered as too exotic to work as much with AI and business intelligence. That was around the year 2012. During that time, the whole topic was not yet so established and I was allowed to learn a lot, try out a lot, work for very different areas from human resources, procurement to strategy department and much more. Then I finally decided to leave Volkswagen with some other research colleagues and decided to set up our own company. We were about 10 people and of the 10 people, only two actually left in the end. And that was the starting point of where I am today. And now to the topic of AI. Today, we work across the board in the financial industry for European governments on behalf of various small NGOs that you've never heard of, right through to semiconductor manufacturers, stock exchanges, financial markets, and so on. And we can actually see in all these areas that the methods that you learn about during your studies, and that's what's really motivating when new students join us, that they work in both small and large contexts. And today I'm looking forward to breaking down this journey a little and seeing what corporate comms are involved. Ani, we've already had the wonderful experience of working together on specific this specific topic, and I'm looking forward to expanding on that today. Great. Hey Jam, tell us a bit about your company, Intuitive AI. What are your customers and what problems do you solve? Well, Intuitive AI arose on the one hand from the fact that there was a lot of experience in different specialist areas where we realized that there was a proof of concept value was created for the different specialist areas from this momentum the developer spirit was awakened and we realized okay that has potential we will continue we'll go out and try to do the same for other industries and this motivation has been fully realized so as i mentioned at the beginning we work in very different industries and in these different industries as a nobody you can completely change things by innovating and redesigning processes where otherwise you wouldn't actually get an anchor point. So the reason was actually to have that effectiveness. And the second aspect, the customers, or what was the second part of the question again, Arnie, sorry? What are the concrete problems with which your clients approach you? So the initial starting point is often the knowledge that you are overwhelmed by a situation without knowing what the solution is and the assumption that there is a solution with AI. The second situation, which we now have relatively frequently because we also work with lawyers, or in regulated areas such as the financial industry, that there are specific requirements to deal with the topic of AI. In these sectors, it must be demonstrated what is being done in the field of AI. And then, of course, benchmarking, you can simply see that there is potential for disruption from the competition. New players are coming in who are simply gaining market share at a new speed that you didn't know before. And you realize that you have to have it under control without knowing exactly what. What all levels have in common is that AI projects always have a very high degree of uncertainty. So that also has to be absorbed. And that is then often an initial feeling. It's rarely the case that you have a precise plan. We are here and we want to get there or can even describe how to get there. But it's more of a knowledge that something is not state of the art. In other words, if I have just understood correctly, customers often still have a vague feeling about what they actually want to achieve with your help. On the one hand, they are confronted with large amounts of data and a lot of complexity. And on the other hand, of course, a lot of what you hear about the great possibilities of AI. So that means there's probably a lot, uh, let's say in quotation marks, 
I suppose even in IT departments, but probably even more so in strategy and communication departments and other departments with whom you collaborate, such as compliance, etc. There is a lot of educational work to be done on your part, right? Absolutely. So it's first and foremost a mindset issue and actually also for the IT department because the IT department also typically works according to waterfall models where you have a very clear requirement and something is programmed to meet this very clear requirement that is accepted. And in data science projects, to keep it a little more general or AI projects, it is of course the case that the truth lies in the data itself. So we know beforehand that we cannot promise that we will generate an output without knowing the data. We can promise that we work methodically and cleanly that we have mastered our craft by using various mechanisms to ensure that we don't, shall I say, miss the mark, but that there are reliable knowledge processes. But we can't promise that the result will be good without knowing the data. It depends on the significance of the data. And that is also difficult regardless of whether it is IT departments or communication departments to implement the implications it will have in the way you manage projects. In Germany and other high-tech countries in particular, we are more in the old tradition of classical industries, zero failure strategy, zero tolerance for what you do wrong, but it should be exactly the opposite. So when we look at our own organization, we really enjoy the fact that young developers also make mistakes and that we can learn from them together as a team. And adapting this mentality, this mindset is, I think, one of the biggest tasks even before the technical issues, which you can commit to very quickly in theory, but which is then super difficult in practice to change with a classic management attitude. Yes, that's a super exciting point. We'll come back to the necessary transformation that needs to take place in companies in a moment, because that's also a topic that we deal with a lot at Cozen, transforming organizations or making them fit for the future, so to speak. You have just made an exciting point about the complexity of these process. And there is that old adage that says seeing is believing. Would you also say that the success of something like ChatGPT and Deeple, just as you mentioned, is the good UI, so it's a nice interface, like I can see immediately what's going on, it's nicely presented. So how important is it for you and your customers to work with visual interfaces? I think that probably makes it literally more tangible, doesn't it? Yes, and then you actually have the diversity of the individual departments. So if you have an IT department, then it's actually the source code that is partially approved, looked at, handed over. Nevertheless, in all cases, there has to be added value and it must be practicable in this process. And we all know that we don't want to go into tools where we have to wait 100 hours. In the digitalized world, we all simply have an understanding of this from the consumer sector. And that, of course, is to generate maximum acceptance. One point that is important, especially in connection to the question we just had about elements in client structures, it is, of course, not possible to make structural comparisons between the consumer sector and industrial decisions. So here, of course, we have a different priority that we have to have first, and we don't have the opportunity to say, okay, we want to start right now with the claim of a Chat GPT or other industry players that have been provided with a lot of VC capital and have pre-financed their business success in the corporate context, we naturally have to justify much more quickly why we are investing in this area. And that means you also have to make various compromises. How do you proceed in a project? How do you set up project management? Where are the hypotheses that we build? Is it enough to measure the data based on it? Or does it have to be directly in a front end? It comes up again and again, and it is also justified. This point must, of course, be handed over to the user. 
but I can only say from my experience that it is not advisable to always make every project as big as possible, but perhaps to say that we have small milestones. The first milestone is an initial classification model, which serves as a baseline and shows us that there is a value, proof of value, so not the proof of concept, but to quickly find out, yes, the AI can identify risks from a large amount of data relatively quickly, and then confirm the hypothesis that you built up beforehand, and then decide on the next steps and iteratively work your way towards the UX topics. Very interesting. I understood that. Say 2023, from the perspective of a non-AI expert, that was a crucial year. ChatGPT and now ChatGPT4, the new release. Was it really the decisive year for AI so far? Focused on the models, no, the year of 2012, 2013 is much more relevant. So for large language models? Exactly. Wow. So explain briefly, because the normal user might have heard about it a year or two ago or something, but you say it really took off earlier. Tell me about that. And probably much earlier. You can just put a figure on this year. Because a former Google developer, I mean, Mikolov, published a paper in which he describes how to close the semantic cap, which was a research gap for a long time. So we can go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where there are various classic machine learning algorithms that have been applied to text data. And they always had the major problem that they were relatively weak when it came to understanding a text semantically. This means that you have different dimensions, you have different vectors. And in one dimension, there is, for example, the word house, and that appears in the text. In the other, there is the word apartment. And I would not measure any similarity between them. We describe this as a semantic cap. And Mikolov published a paper that described how you can, so to speak, from the individual words, so the individual dimensions make vectors. These were the so-called word embeddings. And they actually described as a model how we are semantically able or better able to do this. There were already precursors, jackal indices and the like, but we'll just leave them out for now. How it is really practicable to develop a semantic understanding. And the year 2023 is a decisive year because accessibility has been increased. So I'm right there with you. That's important because you've suddenly had this broad acceptance. For the people who were working and researching in the field of natural language processing, it was actually less groundbreaking. We actually also used language models in our project. These were the BIRD models, open source. And then I would also deviate again from 2023. Then that is actually relatively irrelevant. Then the year 2027 will probably be much more relevant in which open source models will have left chat GPT far behind. And to put this into context again, the GPT models are simply the models that can learn very well in one direction forwards, trained on a lot of data. And because of the law of large numbers, they make sense because you have trained on a lot of data. Does this result in meaningful texts, more or less, um, in most cases at least? And then there are other language models, such as the bird models, which can learn in two directions and are suitable for completely different tasks. And the exciting thing is that many of these models are not being researched in commercial tracks, but are open source. And these are primarily the models that we use for our topics. So we don't actually work with ChatGPT or only very, very little with ChatGPT to try out certain things quickly. But it's more the open source models that we host ourselves and which, of course, also allow us to keep sensitive data sensitive in implications for a corporate department. We then deploy them at the financial institution, for example. And only the financial institution knows what you are inputting into the language model. Especially if you are in the audit area or in other sensitive areas, it is, of course, an essential feature that you do not disclose this to the outside world. 
Yes, that's another episode, an episode that we will also look at specifically the topic of data security and ethics. But I'd still like to ask you about that because you just mentioned the issue of data security and the challenges associated with ChatGPT. Many companies are also responding to this. Most large companies now have something like guidelines and policies for dealing with ChatGPT, large language models. Could you explain this to us again in layman's terms, meaning data security and the challenges which are therewith connected? The first question being the data, does that strictly speaking legally belong to ChatGPT if it is then used by employees? Second question. As a consequence of this, some companies have started to build their own models or solutions based on ChatGPT, so to speak, which are then hosted on their own servers, so to speak, and are simply more secure. Now, ChatGPT has also offered a corporate solution where I think they want to anticipate this pretext of data leaks a little. So let me ask you again, firstly, what is the actual situation? Who owns the data when you enter something into ChatGPT? And secondly, how do you see the future of ChatGPT or large language models in terms of data security? So rather your own solutions or corporate solutions from OpenAI? Yes, the question one can be very quickly from a legal perspective. You read the terms and conditions. You should do that anyway. Of course, we also have products that we launch. You can consume them as a service. You can use them in a similar way to how you are currently using the ChatGPT interface. And then it is defined in the terms and conditions what you can do with it. Of course, we have general data protection, but this can also be interpreted in favor of the company with your consent. Uh, you write personal data in there and they say, hey, you're giving your consent for this data to be used and you're not allowed to enter any private information about yourself. For example, the data is there for the time being and the models learn. And that's also the issue. You give feedback, you give a thumbs up, thumbs down. The company needs the data. It's also a legitimate deal that your data is handed over to the company because you also use this service. And GPT in particular is at least cost neutral in the sense that you don't pay a euro for making a query. The energy costs are, of course, insanely high. The development costs are insanely high. And of course, the company wants to get innovations in return. If you're not a paying customer, you can be pretty sure you're paying with your data. And I wouldn't want to do this as a legal categorization for ChatGPT, but as a general rule, you can say that this is, of course, the input channel that is included in premium with next to it. I improve my product in and of itself. And in return, I let you use my product for free. And I think that's a pretty fair deal. It should only be conscious. And of course, it has a very clear implication in the corporate context, especially if you are not a private individual, ChatGPT. And that is, please don't post any sensitive data here. Is the second question... Yes, very briefly, is the solution a corporate solution from OpenAI? Can you then be sure that the data is secure or, as other companies are doing now, we are simply using ChatGPT or something, building our own solution? So what is there? Exactly. So I would, you have various options for how you make the models um, applicable to you, so to speak. And that's not always necessarily hosting your own model, but that should, of course, be an option that is relevant, especially if you have these sensitive cases, then you have to, then you can't really go around it. And then, in my opinion, at least, it doesn't help you if you have a corporate solution. But there are decisions, especially in the risk area, especially with very sensitive information. You have to be able to do that. 
host your own model, fine-tune your own model, and operate it in your infrastructure. But that's also the exclusive opinion of someone who is at home in IT and has a very differentiated approach to it. I know that there are also many companies that simply rely on the corporate, and there are not only GPT, there are also the Google language models with which we also develop a lot together in various projects where you have to say that they can also do a lot and precisely. But yes, again and again, we come back to this topic. Mindset shift and new management paradigms to understand what does data actually mean. Data is an input factor. So it is now we are in the information economy and we really have to consider it as an asset. And if I look at it as an asset, then I also think very carefully about the value chain. Do I take my asset to some stranger and say, I don't know what's happening with this black box. You can be pretty sure something will happen to it. It will flow into the model. Do I know what's going to happen? No. Do I do it in my own environment, in my own value chain? Is that another case? And then we come to the topic that you've already mentioned. There is an attempt to build a lot of ethical frameworks. I also think that's very good and very right. They usually fall short if the technological knowledge is not integrated into them. That's a bit of what I would criticize. The ethical frameworks bring us something, but they always have to be driven by the technical people as well. And unfortunately, I often don't see this multidisciplinary approach very much either from an ethical perspective or purely from a technical one. But I think the multidisciplinarity is missing a bit. And are you talking about the corporate level or the political level? There is, for example, the AI Act attempting to set European standards. Are you also talking about this larger issue? Yes. So... It definitely resonates with that, and that is definitely the main, a main focus, at least in the political arena and perhaps also in the social arena, simply the understanding of who do we want to be in this area. Do we want to be someone who is characterized by the fact that we think we can discuss this completely in regulatory terms? So Pandora's box is open. No matter how we regulate it, things will happen. And unfortunately, they will flow into the military and make decisions that we don't want to be automated. And there are scenarios that scare me too. But to think that we can contain everything now by thinking about positions in our bubble, thinking about these positions is right, but we can't regulate it so strongly and decide so strongly how innovation will develop. This is a global issue. So I don't think our asset should be that we define a regulatory measure for every pitfall. As an entrepreneur, are you also concerned that this is happening in Europe, whereas other countries such as the USA, China and India are far more liberal in this respect? Definitely. So what the Americans are very good at and the Chinese are also very good at, they are very good at raising capital. They know very well how to strengthen companies, how to build resilience and how to get innovations to the top. Um, we usually try to stabilize certain positions by using the protective mechanisms of large established industries, subsidy programs, extraction premiums, etc., which is also a good thing. On the other hand, we are not good at understanding the innovative nature of new industries, the value that is created. Google, Apple, they're all worth billions. If you just look at the stock market, what the investments are like and that you have to like everything that they do. And that should not be our European model either. But nonetheless, you have to realize that we are not good at it, our innovation, and we have a lot of bright minds in Europe. We have researched very fundamental topics. We have mega good publications. But where are they based and how are they promoted? And that's where we should stop. In my view, we shouldn't say that we are the best at regulating. But we should then take a look at how we can promote this potential and how we can create framework conditions. You just said that uh, we are now at a time when we have to ask ourselves as a society, 
So I would just like to ask one last question about the big meta perspective where we are now zooming in on communication. We have to ask ourselves as a society who we want to be, how we want to position ourselves. Give us a sense of yourself as an expert. Is what is happening right now with AI with regard to digitalization comparable to the magnitude of the change in the year 2000 more or less, the introduction of the internet? Does it have the magnitude and this transformative character? Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So it resonates with what we discussed earlier. Um, a lot of this already existed beforehand, certainly with the communication technology on the internet, which was already somehow present in the university space beforehand. Um, we also had a lot of AI before that. It will change a lot. You can definitely say that, and it will be an infrastructure issue at some point. So yes, the comparison is apt. Uh, let's zoom in again very briefly, as I said, into the corporate communications industry, or not briefly, but longer. Uh, most of us have now experimented a little with ChatGPT or DALI. Some of us have more or less integrated it into our working lives with all the corporate groups, so to speak, that we have, of course, just discussed. But now give us something beyond the content development topic, which I think we can all imagine, and I think most of the listeners can imagine. Um, why don't you give us a, a feel for specific use cases in the communication sector? I'm thinking of things like corporate foresight, stakeholder mapping, or something like corporate listening. Maybe I'll just say briefly that, as you mentioned, we've already done one or two things together, and that really impressed me. For example, we once, we had a topic where we said, how can we manage to simply identify topics, including potential issues? before they become big in social media, for example, before they really become a problem for a company by using other data sources. Or another project where we asked how a company can actually manage to better map the various stakeholders from NGOs to political actors and literally have them live on the screen or on the radar to see how certain positions are developing, also influenced by different engagement or communication activities, so to speak. For me, that was always the way to look into the future, and it made a deep impression on me. Tell us about a few specific cases from the field of communication. Yes, I find, or perhaps started, what I find special is that communication is super interdisciplinary. If it's the first time you've heard of corporate communication, you may think that's perhaps just the formulation of statements, but actually they have to be in the picture everywhere in order to really uh, to live out this mandate. We are able to make statements on all kinds of topics, and we have already discussed changing legal requirements, particularly in the area of sustainability. In other words, there is a fast pace, and that's where the great potential for AI actually arises. So I would simply see that as the origin, because in the traditional world, I think corporate communication is wonderfully equipped with simply brilliant minds who are able to have foresight and can classify different contexts and, like the government spokesperson, make statements on behalf of the respective organization. What will be difficult, of course, and you've already mentioned the right keywords, is that we've also looked at individual projects together and tackled them individually. Corporate foresight, what does that mean? It means that we want to have future scenarios. We want to understand that there is not just one future, but that there are different ways in which we can develop and here, of course, it is also fundamentally important for communication. What image of the future are we working from? Where are which indicators? In which direction is it developing? Which ad hoc reports actually contribute to what and which in turn contribute less? And we are now in a position to do this if we want to. 
We are not only being bought by IT buyers as a company, but by strategy purchases. Why is that? Because we take on the typical tasks that, let's say, a consulting firm simply does. And that was surprising for us at first but it's now very well established. And that has to do with the fact that AI is able to automate the anticipation of the future, so to speak. In other words, we don't have to be McKinsey in order to be able to patch all of McKinsey's future projections into your strategic fields and then um, make them available to you ad hoc in real time. And on the other hand, not to make this about McKinsey, but about all other consulting firms, they are, of course, also in a position to implement this technologically. They have no original interest in cutting off their own business model. Of course, they are structured very differently. And this creates an incredibly large innovation space, especially for young, dynamic business models in combination with the corporate communication department by taking the current process and looking at how statements develop, how positions develop into risks that impact on you. As you just mentioned, stakeholder mapping is also part of our risk toolchain, where we simply say, of course, that there are also justifiably different messages, just like future messages, just like technology trends or social trends that need to be understood in communication, such as in the context of sustainability. Our traditional industries in particular are, of course, still very energy intensive. They have global supply chains which are, of course, affected by human rights violations. In each case, we then have legislation that attempts to address this. That is the regulating factor again. And we have technological possibilities to generate very quick answers. And there is also a simple example of this developed to the very end. We have huge amounts of data that we have stored over the last few years on all kinds of ESG risks. Then we have locally deployed language models, which we are now combining with certain existing risk frameworks that are considered committed by the communications department, the sustainability department, and the risk management department, and which we now also want to report on for the financial market. Accordingly, the communications department must, of course, also be involved in order to ensure that the risk potential is not aligned local subsidiaries and akin. Everyone has to be involved. And that means, of course, there is huge potential here, not just in AI. AI takes over the speed for us. It takes over the huge complexity of these millions of data volumes in order to aggregate them together. So risk data at the front, risk frameworks at the back. In the middle, this must somehow be matched to our supply chain. What influence does that have? And then to be able to make statements on an ad hoc basis when we are confronted or when there are analyst reports. In other words, this is now also relevant for the whole topic of ESG reporting, which will become mandatory for many, many companies of a certain size. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is actually one of our biggest areas in which we are currently integrating AI. And what you can add to that is that communication, where things are going particularly well, is of course closely linked to the issues. Because it does us no good if we say, on the one hand, that we have sustainability, as a top issue, there is a sustainability department that also pushes this. Uh, the communications department is, of course, measured in its statements. And these are the topics that the analysts then take over and position. If this is not aligned with comms, then there will be very different assessments. Since this is not consistent, it'll reflect on the brand value and in other aspects. Yes, simply imposing discrepancies. Um, what I also found interesting in our collaboration was the topic of foresight or corporate listening. So I'm probably using the terms incorrectly now, but identifying trends, identifying topics, using them at an earlier stage for the positioning of the company, for example, but also of board members. 
And what impressed me was the large amount of data. In other words, you don't have a very manageable amount of data, as is usually the case with social media monitoring or press clippings, but rather data sets from the research community on political decision, documentation of political decisions, etc. So that is also the power of this approach, that you and also to a certain extent what is then shared at least that's how I experienced it, has to be developed together with the customer. You say, okay, what exactly is the insight that we are looking for here? And then you can decide which data sources are tapped into and how do we make the system learn? Am I getting that right? So I can absolutely confirm that. In fact, in our corporate office at Intuitive AI, the AI is the augmented intelligence paradigm. So not so much AI as an end in itself, but really the process. It's the process that must serve everyone. The business value that is created within a process, which is a value chain that leads to added value. And that's where AI has to be embedded. That's where we say it's augmented intelligence and not artificial intelligence. And here, of course, we want to understand the process first and foremost. And that's exactly the point that you just mentioned, Arna. Of course, we then start with a resource analysis. In other words, which communities or data rooms are available to us? And depending on the question, it may be that science is much more relevant or the fast-moving social media. And all of these communities have their justification for different things. And in fact, the case you just described was precisely about identifying these trends in order to say, hey, this is the grid, this is the playing field in which certain media spaces, spaces depicted in the media, i.e. science, politicians, consumers, and so on, move. And that's where we want to show which trends are being talked about. And then, of course, this is only possible if you first have a uniform understanding of the process. That is, a uniform understanding of the added value that is required in corporate communication for a certain function, for a certain decision. And I would therefore strongly advise against it. And that's another small backlink. So what are the language models? So I don't want to tie it to GPT, but really the LLMs. What is their raison d'etre? It's not that I'm the jack of all trades, but that I have a specific field in which I'm very good. I can produce texts, I can summarize texts and so on. But there are also classic clustering tasks, classification tasks, where we don't necessarily have to go into the language models or where they play a partial role and where we can use classic machine learning algorithms to develop very efficient algorithms that are also very resource efficient in terms of sustainability and that can build automated decision support. There's always a lot of discussion about what role people still have in this process. And one of the things you always talk about is augmented intelligence. In other words, what relevance what significance do people still have in the evaluation or analysis or classification of these insights using your tools? For us, of course, this is inherent part of a process. People should ultimately become better at making decisions. That is one part of the answer. The other part is the part that I think is obviously reflecting on these technologies and thinking which we would also like to see differently or which we would like to regulate or which should be partly regulated in organizations with the best of intentions. But the truth is, AI will change things radically. There will be many, many activities, many, many jobs that will no longer be necessary. 
And that is part of it. And that's the issue again. And that's the position we want to take. Do we now say that we have to demonize and fend it off? Or do we now say that we have to shape it and use it actively? We have to find a way of dealing with it. And that is precisely the issue that we already have in school education. What role does it play in universities? All these different elements of society threaten to become obsolete if we don't position ourselves and if we don't say, how do we want to shape them? And if we try to contain it or limit it, artificially limit it, and for me, that always involves the truth. And you can't really say that too loudly. But most business cases are still calculated against human labor costs. And then it quickly becomes clear, yes, we want to automate it because then we have it available 24-7. Yes, we can scale around the world. Yes, we lose all the risk spots because now I can actually translate it automatically into different languages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly there's no real legitimate reason why 40 people, that was really one of the most striking examples where 40 people in departments on different continents of the world would read news articles, or not just news articles, read different reports, analyst reports, news articles, and then sort them manually. They would enter this classification into databases and then generate their statements from the databases. Why? Well, we calculated this in hours and compared it to a truth of concept. The business case was clear relatively quickly, and the results were also clear relatively quickly when we used AI. And that doesn't mean that humans will become completely irrelevant, but it does mean that people have to think about what they can do better. And there are things that I can do better, or there are things that I have to take responsibility for the AI. But yes, it's simply part of the truth. The part that is automated is much larger than the space that remains for humans in this specific task. And that will also come from us, whether we like it or not. I think everyone who hears that gets a shivering feeling, a feeling of fear. Sure, exactly. Because as you say, it's a topic that we don't really think about. But I think we are aware of the implications of what's coming. Two questions. Do you have a feeling, a sense of timing, when you think it will really hit home, so to speak? And secondly, can you tell us what potential you see for automation in the communications department through AI? So when do you strike out? I think that's a bit like your internet question. Um, for me, the next few years will be a year in which commercial technology is likely to be replaced by top source technology. This means that we will have another massive boost in the spread of this technology. This means that many individual subdisciplines will diffuse much faster, but there will be some control. As I said, there are legal requirements that you have to deal with AI, and those can be expected. But still, it will happen much faster. All these supply chain risks you have no other way of creating that. You can either completely go back to the last few years and say you're doing everything locally, which is also a trend towards deglobalization. And the other thing is that you then have to think about technical means, and then you have this effect, so to speak, that AI will simply be the solution or an AI component part of the solution. So it's foreseeable that in the next, I would say, three to four years, open source will will be at the forefront. If it is not the language models for certain specific cases where they already perform better than the commercial products. And then there will come a time when we don't know exactly how will the language models be integrated. Commercially, the big giants will then jump on board and make their derivatives of it. That is still very uncertain. But the language models, there's so much power from the community right now, they will grow exponentially while people adapt linearly. And that's why, yes, I share your feeling that there is perhaps a bit of uncertainty involved. But we also had that when electricity was invented, 
We also had it when all kinds of big changes were coming. And in the end, if we look 10 years ahead or X years ahead, we will come to the right conclusions, which will not always be positive, but they will be part of it. What is your assessment of the automation potential within the communications department? Yes, the automation potential is, of course, difficult to answer in general terms. Of course, we will still have to develop cognitive strategies. We will, of course, still have to develop cognitive strategies and discover where the limitations are in the language models. Where do we not have this or that? Well, we have relatively trivial tasks. So reading texts, classifying texts, writing texts, writing statements, which we have very well. So if I can just take the example of consulting firms again, we simply take all the texts. That's hundreds of thousands of texts from the best consulting firms in the world. And the AI can, of course, reproduce and answer similar questions on the basis of this structure. And it can even answer them somewhat creatively in quotation marks. Uh, in German, we say that it's always just old wine in new glasses. But no, the wine actually changes a little and you can show that. So where it really becomes a cognitive achievement, thinking out of the box, i.e. thinking about a heuristic, how do I approach this question, i.e. how do I approach it? And I first have to give various heuristic clues. Of course, this is still a sensitive area in which an AI sometimes doesn't perform well, the language models can simply go completely wrong. And of course, at this level of automation, humans will remain the last link in the causal chain, leading to a decision for the foreseeable future. And I definitely don't see 100% automation in the foreseeable future. However, when it comes to formulating statements now, and there is the fear that these will be repeated again and again, that's not right because we simply have to move away from the topic. We have to break down the topic to such an extent that it is not the one language model that gives a concrete answer, but it responds to exactly what you have mentioned with certain predefined points you touch upon. We structure the world, we have different AIs, an AI gives me an indicator for a future scenario for which a future outlook is classifications or a context takes place. This context is the input factor for my language model. And that is then completely individually automated and dynamic. And no human can keep up with it that quickly because we simply take the hundreds of thousands of documents, really high quality documents. We don't take Twitter news for this. We don't take any, I almost said a bad word, but we don't take bullshit in, bullshit out. But we take really exclusive knowledge that is freely available on the web from expensive consulting firms and use that to then let the AI write reports for us, recommendations on how to formulate a statement. And then the last word, then the person decides, do I adapt this? Then the logic of DeepL comes in, which simply has an ingenious UX. The statement is there, it's prefabricated. And now the person decides, ah, oh, wait a minute, I don't like this passage so much. It's perhaps too political for me. And that's where the role always comes into play. The AI is the data that goes in at the front as training, and that's where AI will continue to have its weak point. It won't automate because we don't know, was ChatGPT trained on Twitter? Trained on what? Is it biased? Does it perhaps have politically biased attitudes in the black box? And that's why the person stays there with a good UX so that it is as minimally invasive as possible in its business process. Customize the text and then send it out. But the big value chain, the text development goes through a whole cascade of automated AIs that interact with each other, merge, and then help you make a decision because it's not completely different. Sorry. No, no, no. That's really exciting um, because we're talking so much about ChatGPT. 
and large language models now. And I think it's exciting that you're opening up the discussion here. Can give us a feeling again, if you can even categorize it like that. What other AI technologies are there that we as non-experts don't even know about? Because if I've just understood that correctly, then the power is there to interlink these different technologies, where perhaps at the end of the day, a large language model is integrated, but it's not everything. Tell us that again. Did I get that right? Yes, you got that absolutely right. And there are also wonderful illustrations, which of course can't be reproduced so well via the audio track, but where you can also see or where it is made clear that there are very traditional approaches, uh, classic approaches that are already very old, classic machine learning methods that also produce relatively good results with very, very little data records. And that is always a big question. So the AI topic in and of itself is a topic in a vacuum until we have answered the data question. What data goes into the front end? What data is available to us? So if someone in the corporate comms context tells you, I have a solution for you, without having analyzed the resources you have available, then it can't really work. Then it can only be half an issue. And then you just have to see if it's a classification task. So I want to say quite specifically, hey, here's a data set that belongs in exactly this specific class. Let's say irrelevant, relevant information. The question is, who defines, so where does the machine know, how can it learn what is relevant and what is not? I would never ask a language model about that. I would simply say that I currently need the process. How is that evaluated? Um, I make a supervised setup out of it and I use classic approaches to reproduce it. Then there can be different limitations for different reasons. And then you go to the next drawer and try to use it again. That's not a satisfactory answer in the sense that it's the easy answer, but the answer shouldn't be easy either because the topic shouldn't be trivially said. It is not trivial. I have to deal with all possible algorithms. All possible algorithms have partial functions. What a machine can always do very well or an AI can do very well is identify similarities and differences. It can measure that. That can be modeled mathematically. And then the question is, how do I get the decision or how do I get what the task is into this mathematical model? And then I decide on different algorithms that either work very well or are very suitable because they are super fast, but perhaps lag a little in terms of quality. But I have to make real-time decisions. Um, or I have very, very few data sets available. And it's not really so much about the amount of data. That's also a fallacy. It's about the significance of the data volumes. How many features do I have and how heterogeneous are the features in the data sets? Now, that's very mathematical. But it's also important to look at it in this context. Otherwise, you make the wrong decisions for algorithms. But back to the question, I can classify very well. I can group very well. I can optimize very well, starting from mistakes reinforcement learning, I can just say, hey, I'm going in this direction and I notice that the feedback is negative. Then I use the other strategy as a solution. So I optimize my target function. And of course, I can then go in again, as we have just discussed. I have now classified situations. I have various mechanisms contributing to a future scenario. And I have a language model. And now I want the statement to be based on what the AIs have done before, classified, categorized, so that the statement I make to the outside world is shared with the environment so that it takes that into account. And finally, another AI is reinforcement learning. When we talk about Deepish, we're not just talking about good UX. We're talking about modern architecture for AIs or modern design for AIs. Every interaction you have now is an update to your learning mechanism. So it's a feedback loop for the learning of the AI. And this makes the AI dynamic. It makes the model that describes the AI 
dynamized, so to speak, from your day-to-day interaction. And then we get into the part where I say, yes, these really are the other technologies that you need to have on your radar. That's where I talk about a value chain that must always be considered in relation to an AI. And it also has to get into people's heads that without understanding this value chain, you can't make a meaningful decision in the AI space. Let me say very briefly, Pajam, about what you just said of the importance of UX and also the interaction, the daily interaction with the tool. In this context, I'd like to ask you again about the recent launch of OpenAI's new assistant API, which in short enables developers to create agent-like experiences. So we will soon see the proliferation of many AI assistants that will probably be able to do very specific things trained on specific topics and hence will be able to also solve specific issues. So how close are we to the interaction of digital AI copywriters, AI graphic designers, animators, in other words, assistants who have really been trained for a specific task? Can you tell us about this development? Is it as revolutionary as it sounds? And what impact will it have on the communications industry? I always like to use the analogy of interns. AI is just beginning. You start the transformation. You get involved in a few topics. You get started in IT with specialist departments having it as an original task because corporate IT is usually not innovation IT, but operational IT. This means that the responsibility then goes to the specialist departments. Once this responsibility has been accepted, you have the first learnings, the first AIs that provide support. And this is also independent of open AI or applies to all AIs that are implemented in a department. And then they will be embedded at some point. They will build structures. That's one thing. So there will be a kind of separate team of AIs that can work together as we have just tried to outline. First of all, we classify a few classic AI algorithms and later use them as input factors for the large language model. And what you can now see as revolutionary, we're currently at the trainee stage. We can't really do much yet. Let's take ChatGPT because everyone has a picture in their head, but that also applies to all other language models. We shouldn't look at this with the vision of what we have now of four, but we should look at it with the vision of 15 and consider what is then possible. And then we're back to your internet analogy. Then that's exactly the right analogy. Where are we right now? Yes, right at the very beginning. It's not exciting what's happening right now. It's exciting that we're now on the way to where we'll end up at with version 10. And that applies to all these language models. And in my opinion, ChatGPT will not win the race. It will be the open source models that will outperform. And yes, it will be very revolutionary. And that's also linked with what impact will this have on people and their work performance? Exactly. I would like to come back to this transformation and the changes that will result from it. The first aspect that I would bring up is, you just mentioned this again. When asked what automation potential there is in the communications department, you say that people should concentrate on what they are really good at originally. And in this context, creativity and empathy are often seen as the last human bastion, so to speak, which simply cannot be easily translated by AI. You're smiling. People who listen to the podcast don't see that, of course. My question, how creative and how empathetic is AI today and which one? Hit us with the truth. How creative and empathetic will an AI actually be by version 10, 0 or 15? I am all in. There will, of course, be certain areas where we have outstanding personalities, people who are always outside of the box who think of something groundbreakingly new. We've just talked briefly about technologies, about multimodal learning. In other words, that an AI can understand everything it sees equally, i.e. images, sound, and text. We don't have that right now. So 
we are not in a position to really combine all of this. We are going down this path more and more, but AI can't do that. And that's also one reason why this creativity has to be enhanced by a human being who has several sensory organs and a huge neural network in their head who can then combine them and, of course, performs better in certain areas. But the perspective I would bring up on this would be different. That is, there are two things that are on my mind with regard to this question. The first is how many people really have the ability to be so creative out of the billion that we now have here on the planet? And then even further, who are we measuring AI against now? Against the average, against the best of the best? And then you have part of the answer deriving from that. Of course, AI is going to be much more creative. That's a big part of it. What do we have now? 8 billion people, 10 billion. If we say it for the future, then 15. That's going to keep growing. And AI will, of course, be a lot more creative. So that's one part. The second part is then in the sense of, is it really the last bastion, so to speak, that we still have humanity? And I always like to take that because I hear that from many of my friends who say, oh, no, it's super important that we stay in personal contact with people. And then on the other hand, they then whine that they have 2,000 clients within a year and there's actually so little left per client per day. Or I go to the doctor and then it's very important that I have personal contact. And it feels good when the doctor puts his hand on my shoulder. That gives me something. Yes, I agree. But if we simply take capitalism as the general trend of recent years and say that it's always been about increasing efficiency, how much humanity is there left in our interaction in our relationship between people. If I have to find the answer to that, it's that when I go to the doctor, I maybe have to wait an hour and then go in for five minutes and immediately leave with an antibiotic. That for me has nothing to do with humanity. And even then, some people think I'm crazy for saying that. But for me, it's simply the reality in which I live. Then I don't go to the doctor. Then I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need to wait an hour to be treated for five minutes for something that I can get automatically. On the contrary, then I might even start talking to the AI about other issues because I feel that the other party can take the time to answer these secondary questions. And I don't have the feeling that this is just about a certain situation in one of the most sensitive areas, which is the medical profession. You don't have to tie this example to them. That doesn't do them any good because they help us with many issues. I just want to point out that this last bastions should also be critically scrutinized. We should not only question AI, but we should also question our social model and then embed AI as a formative element in it. If we incorporate AI into the medical field, the doctor may then have more time to talk to me again and perhaps think about other symptoms that are not necessarily treated with antibiotics, but are instead about a lifestyle that is perhaps very computer heavy and I don't get enough exercise or something like that. Well, sure, this is going to drift off, but I think you know what I'm getting at. No, super fascinating. Let's zoom back in on the topic of corporate communications for the last two questions for today. We have a lot of corporate communications managers who also listen to this. Why don't you make a recommendation? I am the head of a corporate communications department at a large company. What do I have to do? How do I have to prepare now? What do I have to do now with regard to the skills of my employees, with regard to the positioning of the department within the company, perhaps even procedures, processes, department size? I don't know. Just to get a feel for what people need to have on their radar right now. And generally speaking, we can say that you have to determine your level of ambition. And then there is perhaps the vision that you have for yourself. We will certainly still have enough room for, and we have just talked about this, outstanding personalities. So 
if we compare ourselves with consulting firms, then there are the top class consultants who have so much knowledge gathered over many years and they will be better. But do I have access to them? If not, can I get access to them? If not, I have to rely on automation. So first of all, I have to determine either pragmatically or visionarily where I want to be, determine the level of ambition. Then the gap analysis, which is necessary for this. I believe that um, a large part of corporate communications does not get the best people out there, meaning from the world of talent, they are there, but then they may be gone again. And that's where we need knowledge in an AI, in the sense of knowledge management. AI is actually the solution for knowledge management. It consolidates all the historical experience that I have internally plus external experience. So it is no longer lost to me. In other words, my recommendation is very clear. Of course, you should perform a gap analysis on this and look at how many skills do I have? What do I really know about it? And then the tip that I always give to really good friends, forget many of the paradigms you've learned over the last few years. Stop seeing it as a management topic, but try to perceive it as an entrepreneur and be prepared to get your hands dirty. Don't think you can control AI if you don't have your own individual experience. People will be able to fool you. You won't be able to choose the right partners. You won't be able to hire the right people. None of this works if you do not understand the game. And for that, you have to have a willingness to get your hands dirty. You have to be prepared to go back to high school exams and take on this challenge. You have to be honest with yourself. Do I even have the cognitive performance to understand AI? This is a mathematical topic. It's complicated and doesn't just have this mathematical component. It is the pinnacle of digitalization as a whole because digitalization is the infrastructure, the platforms that we need for AI. And you simply have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself and ask yourself the question. And that's what we don't like to do, to admit where we're not perfect. And unfortunately, there will be a lot of things where we will probably have to answer that we are simply not there yet. And we can't handle that. And if we can't handle it, then we have to make decisions accordingly about how we can manage it, what timelines we give ourselves. And yes, so take a very rudimentary approach and first and foremost, get your mindset ready and get your hands dirty. Get them dirty and tell me. Various studies are now coming out on the subject of AI readiness of companies and also, let's say, the extent to which this is already culturally embedded, so to speak. And the figures you read there are sometimes frightening in the sense of what the awareness level is, not only among employees, but also among managers. We're not even talking about deep understanding, but awareness levels. You probably know the figures too. So there's the issue of skill and mindset. And I think we're still a bit far from that. Why don't you give us a classification? Do you have the feeling that this is a German issue or are we in good company internationally? Well, what I definitely think of Germany is that we still don't know where we want to go. So as with many issues, unfortunately, it must be said that we don't quite excel in terms of our ability to act. And here too, it's a bit like based on the prosperity of recent years where we have done very, very well, there has never been a great need to change. And this naturally creates a handicap in Germany. As a result, others had the need to and others have realized that you can actually change a lot with relatively few resources and they have a massive head start. Nevertheless, German industry, the German scene, still has an incredible amount of potential. And the decision to change something is something you can make every day. That's a very small barrier. You really first have to know, and this is what I try to do at an ambition level, do I really have an ambition? And if you honestly have it, then you can take the right steps very quickly. And then you also have crazy potential because there are just so many outdated processes in all kinds of the giant companies that we still have that have real assets and not just securitized assets, real ascents, which then need to be updated again with AI to have a renaissance in which AI can revive many things. 
And then the thing that I would really like to see for Germany is not to look at how the big VCs are doing it overseas or in China and other parts of Asia, but also to look at what kind of successful entrepreneurs we have actually had in Germany. And again, bootstrapping. Personally, we've bootstrapped companies and we're earning a lot of money from it. We can develop a lot of our own value simply on the basis that we don't have. An investor telling us where we should or must go. And my great role model are German family businesses or entrepreneurs who have created wonderful companies that are also inherently sustainable because they have a vested interest in building companies for a future, building companies for their children. And that is why I would like us not to see these role models as something to be sold abroad with pseudo currencies that are sometimes like this and sometimes like that. And then we get billions for it, but we are really losing something. And I don't think we're aware of what we're losing and the potential it holds, including for the topic of AI, because again, it comports mindset, because there is a real mindset coming from German entrepreneurs. I think that's what I'm most worried about right now, because if we don't lose that, then you know we'll still have enough potential to win this race. But if we don't understand what our German assets are and where we actually have our competitive advantage, our German SMEs, then we will have no chance in this race because that is our last card. I don't want to picture a horror scenario, but I do want to point out that we are not aware of our strengths right now and that we massively underestimate them in some cases. And then look over to where the Americans now simply have a unicorn. It is not an ambition to be a unicorn that is only worth half as much after the IPO. That should not be our German way. And we've known that for many years. And I think that sometimes, especially in political discussions, role models are defined by people who have never done it themselves. And that's a shame. Last question. Let's get really specific. How can corporate communications managers get their hands dirty? So in other words, apart from the fact that they should listen to every one of these episodes of the new Future Ready AI season, and thanks again for laying it out with us and kicking it off. Do you have any recommendations on how to get informed? What should one do? Books, podcasts, just to get started? What would be your recommendation to friends? There is actually a wonderful trend in the world of IT. It's this no-code, low-code theme. And with this trend, you can actually start developing with relatively little programming experience or computer experience. And you can do certain things within short cycles. We have training courses now that last a few weeks, and in them you really learn about feeding in data, about databases, about training AI, about visualizing data. That doesn't have to be the solution, but for me, it would be the key to being able to make the right decisions. And there are actually various managing directors involved in the training. There are people who want to reorient themselves, who see that there are limitations that they want to resolve. And then there's the big main point that you can really give as advice. Once you have the mindset, you can start today. Get your hands dirty in terms of education. See it as a high school exam that you have to pass again. You have to go to school. You have to study for it. Please don't leave the consultant, which I am which I also offer commercially, with which I earn good money, but don't put it solely in their hands to solve your problems. It's a short-term improvement, but not a sustainable solution to the problem. Um, I have to recruit people. I have to buy in suppliers. I have to be able to tell the wheat from the chaff. And that requires me to be able to differentiate between things in my mind. And then we arrive at education. Cool, Pajam. Thank you very much for today's show. Um, it's a bit longer than planned, but I think we've taken all listeners with us on a better understanding of the world of AI. 
beyond large language models and language models. Thank you for that. Uh, another takeaway is that I believe this counts for this AI transformation for each individual, but also for the leaders of corporate communications. There are no real shortcuts. You have to go in and face the A-level exam, embrace this transformation. Man, that was a wonderful closing. I would maybe add one aspect. The joy of when you've completed this transformation and you've seen that it works, it's not witchcraft. It's incredibly great and incredibly motivating and makes you want to do more. And after that, the topic becomes a no-brainer. Thank you again for the interview, Arnie. I think it's cool that we're now ending on such a positive note because it was perhaps naturally a bit gloomy at one point or another. Thank you for this positive note at the end. Thank you, Pajam. It was a pleasure, Arna. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Future Ready. Future Ready is produced by COSIN, a strategic communications agency for employee engagement and change. You can find more information at wherecosin.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would of course appreciate a positive review or recommendation. Thank you very much.